Welcome everybody, we're eavesdropping at the movies. I'm Jose. I'm Mike. Uh, and today we have uh, uh, Matt Denny with us. Uh, uh, Dr. Matt Denny. Dr. Matt Denny, <laughs> who actually is currently the co-editor uh, of a wonderful issue of... Uh, film Philosophy. Film Philosophy on surfaces, uh, which I've been finding uh, really impressive and, and interesting. Uh, but today we have him here to talk about... Hereditary. Yes. Hereditary, uh, as you prefer. It, well... You know, you... You say it. Because you and I were together uh, uh, undergrads at the same yes. time here. Yeah. And I remember you being very interested in kind of hammer horror and sort of folk, occult, horror, mm. British kind of stuff, which I was talking about in the previous podcast yes. on Predatory. Um, and I sort of suggested that you and I, Jose, were kind of not enormously qualified to, to really consider Predatory in those terms. Yes, we wanted an expert's view. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I think um, we came to the right guy. Yes. Yes. So, so <laughs> part of the reason why we wanted to talk to you is because there were things in the film that we thought were patterned, yeah, that kind of some extra layer of meaning or some depth or some metaphor was kind of implied by it, and that actually we just couldn't figure it out. We couldn't mm -hmm. tie up the pieces, you know, and we wondered whether you, you might, yeah? Yeah, so what did you make of Predatory? I think, I think it's something you said in your podcast discussion, actually, that it's definitely an interesting film yeah but how much i actually enjoyed it and found it a pleasurable example <laughs> of the genre i'm not sure i could say that yeah much i think there's there's a lot of it that you know if we're talking about this whole period of horror now being like this art horror kind of thing it seems to be very much trying to do that at the expense of being an enjoyable oh, right, horror right. film for me, anyway. Yeah. But that could just be personal taste. So, so what films would you put under this art category of horror? What would be recent examples? It seems to be this label that's used, um, kind of art horror, post horror, elevated horror, to describe any horror film that's critically acclaimed in order to distance it from bad, normal horror. So Get Out's been described in that way, A Ghost Story, uh, The Witch a right. bit earlier, It Follows I think has mm. been roped in to that category and then it goes back to more classical examples like uh, more older examples like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist or The Shining is kind mm. of um, the big one and I think you can right. really feel The Shining uh -huh. in uh, um, Hereditary. Right, okay, how interesting. So, so in, in a way this the sense of uh, art horror uh, or elevated horror is really a way of putting the genre down, right? It's kind of, it's better than a horror film. It's elevated. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like it can only praise horror at the expense of horror. Yes. Which I think is a, which I think is part of the thing that's so telling for me about Hereditary is that it's, so much of it is not a, is not what you think of as conventionally a horror film compared to something like The Conjuring yes. films, right. which are very cleverly and interestingly generic yes. but aren't being spoken about as post-horror or art horror because they are horror films they're kind of unequivocally horror films yes so in so in in the actual the text of the film how would you make that distinction between a kind of more generic film like the conjuring mm. and what hereditary is up to it's a really interesting question i think it's because um and again, I think it's going back to something that you mentioned in that the family drama elements don't necessarily speak to or are worked through 
convincingly through the horror. Right. And like the the fact that it becomes a horror film. Yeah. Is perhaps part of the issue there that yeah. it, it only eventually turns into It feels like a kind of separate concern, doesn't it? It feels mm. like the intention of the film is to set up something reasonably normal, although it's kind of it's heightened and it's weird. A girl gets her head cut off by a lamppost. Mm. Um it's nonetheless kind of it's sort of grounded. You know, it's a, like you say, it's a family drama and a tragedy. And then the the wilder supernatural horror elements jump in and kind of take over. I think yeah. it feels to me deliberate rather than uh, you know something. That yes, <laughs> I mean uh, that's right. So and and part because there is a patterning of things, right? Mm-hmm. You expect to pay off, you know. And I I kind of thought, well, maybe I'm just not clever enough, or I'm not familiar enough with the genre, mm-hmm. you know, to detect what the payoff is. So for example, there seems to be some connection between. Uh, the Tony Collette character uh, making that installation, which is a house, mm. you know, and then becomes a metaphor for the home, which then the home is a, you know, a place for something yeah. else. And I just could never kind mm. of hue mm. in as to, you know, what was happening each time. So, you know, the, the camera often goes into the dollhouse, mm. right, or the installation house, in quotation marks. But... But what is the connection? Why? When are you cued in? Like, mm. There seems to be something there that I just didn't catch. Mm. Yeah. You know, I also felt, I'm sure there were shots, like, like establishing shots of the house and its surrounds in the kind of woods that used uh, tilt-shift effect photography to make it seem like it was a miniature. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. a, like mm. a, so, so again, it's kind of drawing a link there between the two. But, but again, what it's saying, I suppose you could sort of... Well, it's, it's sort of saying this is like a toy house where... Um, these these people are playthings for something much greater, yes. which I guess ultimately is what the film says when the demon comes back and they've just been used to bring this thing back. Yes, I mean, uh, yes, and and you know it's interesting because obviously it is thought through on some level because that's one of the posters for the film, hmm. right? So you know, display, yeah, it's a playhouse for uh, uh, otherworldly beings, I suppose. But is that all there? Is that it? <laughs> you know, because actually, it it seems that it's overdetermined. Then all of those shots of going into the house and yeah, and the and the and the connections really aren't quite made. As, yeah, I mean, mm. so on a metaphoric level, yeah. yes, but but I, is that? I mean, that's certainly how I was trying to process it and understanding that idea that by having that similarity between the installations of the, the, the dollhouse like quality of those, and then the idea that. The, it being a supernatural occult horror film is positing the idea that there is some external force mm, that right. is controlling or has power over the actions of the individuals within yeah. the film. And perhaps even the Tony Collette character, the mother, as the agent of that in some ways. Because I think there are odd moments like the sense of how aware she is of what's happening, how much she is just a plaything, or how much she is an architect or a tool perhaps well, rather we than figure that a plaything. The film seems to be ambivalent on that as well, mm. right? So, she, you know, she says, I've, I've been distancing myself from my mother my whole life. Mm. And you get a sense that actually that is tied to a feeling of not wanting to be an agent for those mm. things, right? Mm. So, but then how she becomes one, like the, pro- yeah, the process or the development didn't seem cohesive to me. Yeah, and I think it's it's toying with a couple of things that horror films are interested in. And one is the kind of going right back to something like The Innocence or any kind of gaslighting type of horror where 
you don't you're unsure if it's madness or the supernatural but it seems really it's really on the nose with just having this kind of litany of mental illness yeah. in her family and then the way that and i think colette modulates it quite well with her mm. performance the way that it that actually a rather believable reaction to the supernatural is to go mad yeah. like that's a really lovecraftian kind of <laughs> response like that that is completely destroying your sense of how you thought the world worked. So her reaction in that first um, seance yeah. scene where she essentially just has a panic attack, I think is one of the most interesting things I've seen in a horror film for a while. This idea that it's not just, oh, that's a bit shocking or yeah. this is interesting and playful, like stacking chairs in, mm. in Poltergeist. It's that shouldn't happen. I've looked under the table. This isn't a trick. I'm sure that this is real, mm. but it shouldn't be real. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, actually. That, I, that's, no, that's a really good point, actually. That kind of struck me too, although I hadn't really thought about it. Like, um, I think there's a... I think it's partly that as the world sort of generally becomes increasingly sceptical of things, and, they, and you know, people, people are always like, oh, I love science and stuff, which is a bit overblown, <laughs> but, but there, is, there is an increasing understanding of, of kind of how to think about things sceptically. And I think like that looking under the table is something that you might not have seen in the 1970s, mm. you know? But it's like, it's something that is, is, it's the first port of call now. And I don't think it necessarily speaks to the character as much as it speaks really to the audience. Mm. The audience wants to know that there's no trick here. And you're mm. kind of, you're kind of sort of establishing for them that no, this is actually supernatural. This is really real and something's happening. And then as you say, she goes, she, she takes it kind of so to heart that this is something completely unbelievable that, that again, yeah, that, that seemed... That felt kind of novel to me as well, and to, and that speaks to I think what what I found really realistic about the film, the way that people kind of react to those things, and mm. um, so that's not that's not part of the family drama which I was mm. kind of talking up before, but nonetheless, it's 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 Colette's character, sort of, sort of responding through, through a yeah like a, a really believable, kind of no, like just no, this is okay, I'm getting out of here. I like that. Because it's so light as well. It's not like... She didn't have to see the husband being set on fire to have that reaction. She only had to see something move on the table. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's, it's kind of... It's really light. And I, I like that. Yeah. And I think the son's reaction after the accident can be interestingly read in that way as it becomes a way... To, it's, it's an unthinkable horror yeah. that he's become involved in. And that's even before it gets properly supernatural. That's like the instigating, yeah. uh, the inciting incident and then his reaction is to just go i'm gonna pretend this didn't or not even not not even i'm gonna pretend this didn't happen but i'm i can't process this mm. so my i'm brother, just gonna act mechanically <laughs> my brother sent me a, oh let me just find it. he sent me a text this morning saying how did you ignore that <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was a really yeah. good point he said um where was it uh that moment after the beheading is so good and unfortunately precedes the most frustrating narrative drop in memory but how do you just skip over the boy having killed his sister when the shot holds on his face straight after? Which is a really good thing to pick mm. up on because that was, again, it was that... And I suppose I talked about it just very uh, obliquely in the first podcast when I said, like, how do you uh, talk to your family mm. about that, the horror of what you've just done? But it was that kind of processing it himself and being and essentially being unable to process it himself. Yeah. Like, this isn't a film in which people can just take things as they occur and yes. then respond to them. People just shut down when it happens. We spoke about the aftermath of that, too, uh, 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 at length. Yeah, the the blaming of the mother mm. and the son, and 
Yes, which all has to do with this idea of, you know, of processing that. Mm. But, I mean, for me, kind of part of the problem, part of what doesn't make sense about the film is this idea of, of complexity. And also what I see as slightly different genres. Yeah? Mm. So, so, or, 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 so within horror, for example, you think things like the gaslighting films or, or the supernatural films you know, are all quite different than, let's say, I don't know, the monster films. Or, mm. Yeah, they kind of... And actually, this one brings in, yeah, element, quite different elements. So, for example, at the very beginning of the film, I thought, you know, the focus on the daughter and what she represented, I thought there would be something creepy and supernatural and, mm. you know, yeah, that, that, that then becomes kind of more more body horror or, yeah, like, so... Um, on the one hand, there's the contrast between the, the child being, you know, even through, you know, that wonderful face that the actress has, kind of, you know, something from another world. And then, you know, all the conversations that the Tony Collette character says, I wanted to abort you, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, mm. there's, it's, it's, it almost feels like they're, they belong in slightly different films. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I've been trying to think through the... Charlie character a bit because I think as you said on the one hand there's that very there's very much the sense of this is a creepy child yes. film you know it's it's the omen or something like that mm. and then actually thinking that it is kind of the omen but the omen getting frustrated or because they're trying to bring about the the rebirth of the the pieman one of the mm. um the kings of hell yes. creature demon um creatures and there's that the the mother's friend at at the end says something along the lines of we've rectified the mistake you had the inappropriate female body and now you've got the male body yeah. and Charlie has a conversation earlier saying she likes spending time with her grandmother but has the sense that she wanted her to be a boy yes. and so the idea that Charlie is in some way the promised coming yes. of, of Paimon and that actually perhaps is in the film, is possessed or something at the yeah. earlier point because there's the recurrence of the the models that she makes on the table of the mother's friend. There's kind of shot of that. Oh, yeah. And it has the son's picture in the middle of the kind of triangle. Yeah. And so there's this, these kind of, and the, the motif of the beheading, the um, pigeon as well. And then you have Charlie's yes. head on the Pyman statue. And then I actually, I looked up, because um, Pyman is from the Lesser Key of Solomon, which is a kind of esoteric book in the Western uh, mystery um, tradition. And rather than necessarily being like um, Pazuzu in The Exorcist, who is a, I think, a Babylonian or a Mesopotamian demon, this is being from a work of kind of Renaissance occult mm. magic that this is just an invented demon. It's not taken from an earlier religion and an old god mutated into a demon. This is kind of created as a demon in a book about conjuring mm. right. um, demons. But um, apparently is often depicted with, whilst kind of being male and described as male, is depicted as having a female face. So there's something, if you know that, there's something quite yes. pleasing. But like, I, I mean, I re recognised the name and I kind of knew where to go to it's like I'll go to the big book of demons and find out if it's if I'm if I'm right but I don't know if knowing that 
makes the film better or makes mm. it make more sense but it's fun I guess yeah. in a way but I think in a way this sort of speaks to what I was saying about uh, there being kind of a feeling of there being a code in the film that you need to kind of crack to really understand it so the idea that, that basically I, I hadn't heard of Pyman I didn't know anything that you, um, that you just brought up and obviously there is then a kind of interesting and fun as you say link there mm. but um, the idea that like I would have to sort of need to know that to make more sense of it or that the film the, 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 the film can't expect you to know that, obviously. So is it there as a kind of Easter egg? <laughs> or is it kind of there as, as like something really meaningful that just means that most people aren't going to get the full kind of uh, understanding of what the, what the filmmaker wants you to get out of it? You know? Like, uh, and um, there's, there was something about uh, like the symbol. There's a symbol that keeps cropping yeah. up in the film. I think it's on the lamppost that the, 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 yes. the Charlie yeah. uh, that kills Charlie, and, and I, I think it's I think it shows up in the in the models as well. Mm. It's on one of the embroidered welcome yes. mats. Yeah. It's on the book, and it's the necklace, yeah. the necklace as well. Yeah, and this symbol keeps kind of keeps coming up, and and uh, it feel, I, I remember something similar in Kill List. Well, there's one since I've seen Kill List, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a similar kind of symbol that just pitches up from time to time, and it's never really made into anything. No one kind of fixates on it and says, now this symbol, and let's do something with it. It just kind of shows up as if to say, like, behind everything there's a plan, but that feels really dissatisfactory to me. It feels like it, it, it's all very well as a filmmaker just, just to put this symbol around the place, mm. but if it's not really pointing at anything more concrete, if there's nothing that it, within the film is kind of built out of it, feels kind of lame to you. Yeah. But then maybe you're missing something. Do you find it equally unsatisfying in both Kill List and Hereditary? I think I do. Although, as I said, I think it's a while, it's a while since I've seen yeah. Kill List, so I don't remember it all that well. But uh, it just seems like... I mean, actually, in Kill List, I didn't even notice it all that much the first time. But uh, someone pointed out to me, oh, did they see the symbol? The symbol's there all the mm -hmm. time. And then I was looking out for it the next time. And, and then I kind of went, okay, so it's there, but... Uh, I didn't mind that in, in this film. Because actually, I just think that it's kind of used as a narrative device. It's a way of you being able to kind of then make links and mm. in a way guiding you through this unsolving of a mystery, really. Mm. You, you, you begin to connect yeah. what's happening in the house to, you know, the, the, the grandmother and uh, the, um, uh, the, the grandmother's best friend, yeah? Who, Is it Joni, the friend? Joni, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you begin to kind of, you know, make all of those connections and mm. then see that there is a plan for everything. So actually uses that kind of narrative link device. I think that works quite well. I didn't mind that. Mm. And yeah. I think there's something pleasing in the way that by doing that, it evokes how the occult and the esoteric works in that it is meaningless unless you know yeah. the code. So, and it almost puts you in the position of a horror film protagonist. If you start seeing the code Mm. And if you think of those kind of the numerology films like um, the number twenty three or Knowing, mm. even where you start seeing meaning yeah. everywhere that you haven't seen before, but I, I don't think the characters react to it enough. Yeah, I think uh, that's the that's, that's the thing where there is the audience we are put in that paranoid state of seeing meaning. Yeah, whenever this symbol. Um, reoccurs. We're privy to the words written on the wallpaper at various points oh, yeah. um, throughout the house, and I think we see Tony Collette replicating yeah, one does. of them, which I think is a really interesting moment in terms of 
is there magic involved in her? Is there something ritualistic about the replicating the house in every detail and the control yeah. and that kind of thing? And is it dangerous to just naively copy words? I mean, because one of the things I particularly like about The Exorcist is the way that it kind of uses sacramental mm. language to convey power, that there is some kind of struggle and that words are meaningful. And you kind of get this through the words being written and mm. hidden. I think I'm talking myself into thinking I liked the film more than I actually did, but I think maybe that's part of what you're, you're getting at, is that if you're actually interested in and um, enjoy this kind of, I'm going to unpack mm. how this film is engaging with the occult, not just in a kind of content way, but formally, how is this an esoteric film? How is it an occult? Yeah, film. That's really interesting. You know, I immediately went away and went, okay, I've got enough clues to try and make sense of how much of this is made up for the film and how much of this is kind of, for want of a better word, real nah. rit ritual magic. But, but again, like that doesn't. The you know, going back to the Exorcist, I guess because I know it's one that you're not particularly fond mm. of, um, Jose. But I think it's really good as a template for the religious or the ritual or the occult um, film. The choice of Pazuzu as the demon in that is interesting. I mean, one, the icon looks scary and has superficial resemblances to depictions of Lucifer, so there's that. But there's also the fact that it's used, it's actually used as um, a protection against another type of demon that particularly pay, play, uh, preys on children and pregnant mothers. So within, there's this kind of both the link to Catholicism in the film, but also this link to, to demonology and older traditions. Whereas I don't know why choosing Paimon, Paimon works so much yeah. in that way, other than it being this kind of perhaps a lesser known, but actual mm. demon. Do you think it's fair for me to have sort of said that, um, that that the film should have explained more or that it was being kind of ambiguous, whereas actually bringing a knowledge of the kind of things you're talking about to the film would have opened it up for me? Like, it's kind of, is it more my fault than the films that I didn't really get on with it? But I'm not sure those no. things actually point anywhere. I think that, that there's the pleasure of um, reference hunting, mm. but I'm just not sure, like, the words that are scribbled on the walls have a look about them yeah. that made me think of various languages used in ritual magic but I didn't know what they were yeah. I mean it's not I mean I guess you can't write abracadabra because that's been <laughs> devalued into being just a word for stage for yeah. stage magic but like it's not the kind of they had the look of words of power or names of of demons but they're not necessarily from any single tradition or they're not so there's not this rigorous app yeah and they're not made okay. coherent within the context of the film like they're shown and then they go away yeah mm. let me uh, one of the things that i found that was really surprising and interesting about the film was that there were moments that i found like deeply affecting yeah so as a kind of a family melodrama almost you know there are moments where you find yourself moved right but they feel very inconsistent and then when you so when you try to relate that aspect of the film as a kind of a fam family melodrama to some larger theme, like what is it saying about the family or what is it saying about the family in America or 
yeah, I couldn't quite, you know, extrapolate. I couldn't quite. Yeah. It, it didn't seem cohesive enough to then kind of use that as you know a springboard to something else. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. I I think that is a a limit. I think that goes hand in hand with the yes, it's doing all this occult stuff but that's not necessarily gelling with what it's saying about the family mm. or anything like that. Whereas I think arguably something like The Shining or the Amityville horror or Insidious or the recent Conjuring films, these kind of, I mean, several of those are just, you know, they're just straightforward horror films. They're not talked about in terms of post-horror or, or art horror other than The Shining, perhaps, are saying things about the family. They're saying things about... Um, precarity mm. and kind of you know a lot of these films are um this house is suspiciously cheap that's fine we'll live we'll live here you know and the reason it's suspiciously cheap is because it's a murder house or mm. something like that you know i think something like drag me to hell is saying something really interesting that. about yeah. the financial crisis and yes. kind of how even a normal person is implicated even someone who sees themselves as innocent might be implicated in that kind of system yes. whereas other than a statement other than those moments where you have someone reacting to something just unprocessable like real sort of moments of horror that can't be contained in any way I'm not sure what it's set how the horror is adding to the allegory that just doing a family melodrama about mm. a terrible accident wouldn't yeah. say which I yeah. think is a shame and and in a way making it because making it fated, having it kind of so the the telegraph pole, the lamppost or whatever it is, having the symbol mm, yeah. on it, all leading towards the point, almost devalues this idea of we're dealing with a horrible accident that mm. no one can yeah. deal with. If it had done a sort of um, pet cemetery a kind of deal where right. it's um, I can't deal with, you know, the death of a child is a terrible thing. Mm even though you know they won't come back right, will you still go through with this ritual? Will you still make a deal with the devil mm. to fix this? And then the recognition that it is unfixable and that you've kind of just, by avert, by perverting the natural course of things, something terrible has happened. Whereas that's not the case here. It's preying on her desire to speak with her mm. daughter again, but it's not... It hasn't got that sense of you've transgressed in some... He keeps having these hints of the mother's transgressions. This, yes. you know, oh, you don't have the appropriate love um, for one of your uh, your children. Although kind of in Interstellar, that's apparently a great... That's fine. <laughs> I digress. Um, but, you know, there's, there's none of these moments where... It's a character's. It's so it talks about blame all the time, and yet the idea is it was a witch cult all along. Yeah, yes. kind of undermines that I think, and I think the, it's the horror working against the real sadness and horror that's mm. coming out of the family melodrama. Right, what you want to see is the is the horror being used to build upon and emphasise and, and basically respond to the way that characters behave and the decisions that they make. It should be some sort of reaction or punishment or something like that for that. But as you say, it's just yeah. it just uh, behind it all. It was a conspiracy by the druids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like even even in a more conventional haunting film, even if it had just been Charlie coming back and haunting the son. Yeah. 
that, but that actually being a manifestation of either his guilt or the mother blaming him, and that being the thing that needs to be exercised, that's a much more straightforward, old-fashioned horror plot. Yeah. But that connects the two yeah. halves of the film, and I think it's unfortunate that there is that kind of... There's, there's a sense that there is the occult impinging on this normal world. It's been there as this secretive framework all the time manipulating everyone, which is interesting in its own right, but when that starts undermining the things that are so successful yeah. about the film... Mm. I think when I think is... back on it, I think I'd go, I wish... I'd like to see the version of the film where it's allowed to continue being a pretty regular drama mm. about people having... Uh, tragedy and arguments and trying to process his grief because I think like you say mm. the, the idea the, the depiction of people kind of processing uh, grief or unusual kind of shocking things mm. as being just to shut down that that is fantastic and that's something that felt really original and yeah. and then it, it's it's it, it's almost as though the film doesn't have the confidence to, to it's like oh my god I've got something really good here but I don't know how I'm going to live up to it I'll, I'll just throw in some uh, sort of seances <laughs> yeah <laughs> I want to uh, um, just ask you because one of the things that I felt when watching the film was that it had uh, uh, that it was pulling in two directions so on the one hand Tony Collette who was really fabulous in the film was sometimes voicing things that you could see as feminist or, mm. yeah, kind of things that women might feel but are silenced from saying, like not wanting a child or not liking mm. their children or, you know, having tried to abort them <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, or wanting to set them on fire, right? Like, mm. yeah, kind of, you can imagine an exasperated, depressed mother, you know, maybe thinking all of those things but not being able to say. So the film voices it. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, it has elements that might be seen as kind of feminist elements. And on the other hand, I had, I felt it was quite misogynistic in ways that I couldn't quite make a good argument about, but that I nonetheless felt. And I wonder, you know, what your feelings were on this. Yeah, and I think it's because it's almost a clash of two traditions of representation of women in the horror film. And one is that that is actually something you get um, in Insidious as well, is the representation of the, the father or the male figure in the film as completely rational, that is the sceptic and needs to be convinced by facts, which I think we get yes. in um, this with Gabriel Byrne. And the mother reading everything as supernatural, but that being coded as hysteria, the, mm. you know, and the kind of the policing of that and... You know, um, Rosemary's Baby does that really well with her paranoia and that, that she's right. There's that, so there's that presentation of kind of female madness which can either be left ambiguous or can be a vindication of, you know, everyone has said that this is a wrong way of thinking, they've been policing my emotions and they've said I've been irrational, but this was actually the correct way to process this situation. Mm. And I'm not sure that Hereditary ever goes, this is the correct way mm. to process this um, situation. And I think you end up having a lot more sympathy for Gabriel Byrne's um, character to an extent, even though it comes to the point right when he says, this isn't helping you, I'm not going to do it. 
anymore that being the turning point of, well, actually, maybe if I did behave the way you were behaving, it would be the correct way yeah. to solve this. But that butting up, that kind of tradition is butting up against um, the evil old witch. Mm. You know, it's it's the grandmother and her friend that are the leader of this, yes. of this witch cult that have been manipulating everything from behind the scenes that have an obsession with the young male body. You know, there's this yeah. whole thing happening there and that they are the big bad and that they've been manipulating everything all along. So on the one hand, you've got this, what could be a really interesting exploration of how the behaviour of a woman is managed and controlled, and especially around things like childbirth and grief and that sort of stuff. And then it's, you know, it's the cackling coven of, of witches yeah. that want to bring about, that want wealth and to resurrect this kind of perfect male, then in service to a male demon exactly. as well. And, and what it, about the repeated imagery of, of decapitated women? Yes. Yeah. See that a lot. Yes. And there's, there's a little bit of, I think there's a little bit of luxury in it insofar as, well, luxury is probably overdoing it, but the film, <laughs> the, the film enjoys sort of, it's, you know, it's going, you're going to be shocked by seeing this, this little girl's decapitated head covered in ants yeah. getting mm. eaten, you know? It's just that it is, it is horrific. And it is shocking, and I suppose it's a kind of, if, if that's what you want, it's a great image, yeah. but um, it feels like it kind of lives for showing this a little bit too much. Mm. Yeah. And also, I didn't like, I didn't like the way that Tony Collette was done away with. <laughs> it, felt, it felt really brutal. And actually, I think, you know, there could have been a film in which she wins and actually that would have transformed everything mm -hmm. right and kind of you know and turned it into a more of a pro-women or feminist kind of statement whereas actually you know the, yeah the, the film does luxuriate in punishing her mm. you know and like, like in a way that feels unpleasant yeah it's not just a, a glorious set piece where you you know you can have fun with it because actually that is the protagonist so yeah mm. I kind of there, there, yeah, there were all these elements that kind of in not working seem really questionable. I mean, she also kind of gets total, even before the moment of decapitation, she's become inhuman yeah. by that point as well. You know, she's scuttling around walls, she's hovering, yeah. Yeah. there's all these kind of, so you lose that sense of it being a human struggle anymore. She just becomes, you know, like you're saying, it's got all these different elements. That's when it becomes the monster yeah. movie, which is exciting. I love the sound. The use of sound in that yeah. scene is, great yeah. but I was kind of hoping it would be more like the um, the grandmother's corpse was making that sound as it yeah. tried to animate itself rather <laughs> it's a strange you know, yeah like the decapitation it's striking imagery but it's and I don't know if they're trying to build a kind of vocabulary there with I don't know just with what I then went away and found out about what well, okay so are women's are women's heads important ritual components of this or is yeah. that just and I suppose <laughs> if, if they are in the kind of, in the sort of law of, mm. of Paimon, if, if it is important, as you say, she has a, a, a yeah. girl's, Paimon has a girl's face and that women's heads can be sort of construed as important in the film in that way, the film doesn't do anything to actually convince you of that or, or show you that. It's just a repeated uh, image of, of a female body with no head or a female head with no body. Mm that appears to be really meaningless within the context yeah. of the film specifically. Yeah. Well, because we get the underlined bit of text saying he's covetous of a male body, and then we get the big image of it'll give you riches. Mm. Um, but 
that and there's the suggestion that maybe this ritual has been tried before because is it the father starved himself to death and the son hanged himself yeah. so again yeah. it's particularly male mental illness yes. that's being listed back and so and it's playing with that that whole idea of supernatural events being read as mental illness and madness because they're completely contrary to the rational world and the way that things mm. work. So let, let me just change the conversation a little bit. So seeing as we've, we've gone through so many different ways in which the film is unsatisfactory, <laughs> uh, why do you think it's been such a big hit? I think the fact that we're having this conversation is perhaps part of it. Like, it's definitely a film that begs conversation, and I think I've had more fun talking about it mm. than I did watching it. Um, yes. I always find this with movies that I didn't really yeah. like very much. I find that doing the podcast makes me it makes me more interested. It makes me like the film more as well. <laughs> yes. You know? So yeah. I think, you know, it, it speaks to a really important aspect of film going, which is talking to someone yeah. about the film afterwards. I also think it's that's the name of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it's I think it's just part of the course of like suddenly horror films are being people are watching horror films and allowing them to be good. I don't. <laughs> that, no, no, no. That's, that's been going on for for many years yeah. now, right? So that's not that's not precisely to do with this film. And yet, I do find the um, success of it kind of interesting because you know it's a low budget film. It uh, you know as we discussed in the last podcast, it's already made something like it cost ten million. It's already made forty five million. It's only been in release for a little while. People are wanting to discuss it. They're attracted mm. to it. Uh, um, you know. So, what is it about this? What it, What is it about the film that is connecting with audiences? I think that's interesting. well. It's interesting because, on the one hand, it's made a good profit. On the other, I think there's been a real mismatch between critical reception and audience reception. Audiences, although they've gone to see it, have come out not having had a good time. Ah. A lot. I mean. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, walked out of our screening. A few people did walk out. Yeah. I, I don't know how much you can sort of. I, I know that people um, uh, have played with uh, Rotten Tomatoes and things to try and give certain films bad scores. Yeah. Kind of stars, so it's stupid. I don't really think that's going to be the case with a film like Hereditary. But um, you can see a, a very stark difference between critics who like it a great deal and audiences who found it slow and boring. The kind of typical difference yeah. that you find in arty cinema. Right. Um, critics are like it and audiences that don't mm. uh-huh. but, it, but it, so audiences have gone to see it but I don't know if they've gone to see it twice you know what I mean uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I, that's an interesting and one. I think aesthetically there's a lot about it that speaks to particular qualities that are valued in art cinema and independent cinema like it's slowness the use of very of, of long shots yes. that it's this very distant um, t- you know there is something Kubrickian uh-huh. About it in and like the shining in that rather than having a mid rather than having a mid shot, you're having a long shot. So yeah. you're further away from events. You're further away from the characters. That you're showing empty spaces before a character enters them, rather than being in a more kind of traditional intensified continuity type style that you would see mm. in horror films. And I think that this is perhaps me being overly defensive as a horror fanboy, <laughs> but. I think that appeals to critics who would not normally think twice about yeah. a horror film. What I'd be interested to see was what horror fan publications are saying uh, about the film, which I haven't looked into yet because sure. I've tried to see it as fresh um, as oh. possible. But I think it's definitely it's a compelling 
film. It's really interesting to talk about, but I also think that there have been equally interesting and more enjoyable conventional mm. um, horror films. But then I even think something like The Witch or um, Get Out are um, more enjoyable horror films. Yes, they are. And they work better as horror films yes. than this, um, than this also, does. Just to go back to your idea of the Kubrickian, mm. uh, you know, I think... So, because that's one of the things that Mike brought out in the last, the last podcast, you know, the wonderful use of, of long shots and long takes and so on. But on the other hand, there's a disjunction between, or a disjuncture between that and what I feel is like a really ugly mise-en-scene, mm. you know, that kind of very little attention has been paid to color, right, and framing and composition and, you know, of making things meaningful, you know, and beautiful. Yeah, that, that it's a, you know, yeah. as an aesthetic experience, that it's all that gray, right? Uh, yeah, mm. and, and yeah. so... And I think it's a misunderstanding of the Kubrick style as only being about the framing yes. and not about what's in the frame. Exactly. That's, that's Tom Hooper. I mean, look at, Bar <laughs> yeah. look at Barry Lyndon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. and, I think, and I think there's something, you know, that you're missing the richness of what's... Which is weird considering it's got... You know, rather than letting you see that there are these weird bits of writing on the wall in one of its many big long shots, it just shows you a disconnected close-up of the writing mm. on the wall. So why not have these... I mean, if you watched um, Room 237, there's a lot there's of weird that. occult, esoteric readings yes. of that, of things like tins of coffee or tins of peaches or something yes, I love like, that. like that and uh -huh. you know and I think that that kind it's like the film is trying to motivate that kind of reading but can only do it by going look at this line I've underlined in the book here's a really pointed close-up of that symbol that you've seen mm. in other places rather than it being there whereas I think more like with Kill List it's kind of just there yeah mm. and you only see it once you're able to see it um, and so I think there's, like you were saying, there's that lack of use of colour and richness of imagery mm. that you get with even, you know, something like The Shining being yes. the closest um, comparison. And it's just kind of a grey, normal, suburban mm. house. Yes. <laughs> yes. It strikes me that films that, that handle, films that are about the occult and, and kind of folk horror, um, although I'm not very well versed in them that it seems to me they, they, they have to start off without that they have mm. to start off in, in a kind of unmolested real world and then introduce these elements um, so which is a, again which is probably the kind of probably why I don't get on with these films so much because mm. as they do more and more of that I'm going oh but you're losing what, re what I really enjoyed so I'm not that interested in the occult I don't I, I, I don't find it saying that it's not, it's not saying that I have a pre-existing interest in it's not saying that I'm interested in kind of finding the, the, the clues or background out about particularly so um, so these films kind of start off building these real stories, these real dramas, quote unquote, and then introduce these these weirder aspects mm. that kind of turn me off. Um, which is exactly what happened with this. Which is exactly what happened with Kill List. And are there, are there examples of films that just start off within the occult world, kind of pre straight up and say this is what this film's going to be? I think it seems to work better with period pieces. So. The witch being a more recent example, you're dealing with a milieu in which people believe in witchcraft. Yeah. So, and the archaic language and the discussions about, you know, they leave the village because he's a, 
he's dissenting from a dissenting religious sect. So that idea of religion and the supernatural was already built into it. Or um, Blood on Satan's Claw, which is really wonderful, kind of, it opens with like, a, a, I believe it's like a shot of a raven in a bare branched tree. And then a plowman plows up a kind of skull and you see the, all of these wonderful shots from within the furrows. And so this idea of the evil coming out yeah. of the land or you have something like the wicker man where you have an outsider coming into a place where the occult is, is rife yeah. you know and they are quite openly and happily pagan and that's not something that sergeant howie can deal with because that's one of yeah. the things about folk horror is the idea of an outsider coming into a community with different ways yeah. kind of an older way of doing things and you see that a lot on the kind of the tv versions of folk horror like something like children of the stones you have mm. a scientist and his son coming to um a village which is shot in avebury so it's all within a stone circle and it's a cult and they become yeah. and they come so i think you either have that sense of there is this or even kill this kind of works in that kind of way of outsiders coming into yeah. a place or to stick with ben wheatley you have a field in england which is set in a period where that kind of thing is more straightforwardly believable. So there has to be... I suppose also the audiences. Like These films are made for audiences. Yeah. Which, these films are not made for tiny communities of 400 people that dance around stone circles. Yes. These films are made for people, <laughs> these films are made for people that, that, by and large, don't believe in this stuff anyway. Or if yeah. they even do, they don't believe in this particular sort of aspect mm. that the film mm. might be talking about. So you have to sort of start it off for everybody mm. before kind of, before drawing these things out, I suppose. Do you think uh, uh, what, the reason that, that I wanted to talk to you was mm. because I kind of I remember you being interested in in not just horror but particularly kind of British and occult mm. style horror. I think wasn't your um, was your dissertation on that? In the uh, my, I did my MA on Hammer. So. Right. Yeah. So um, is it? Do you think is is it is it fair of me to have sort of made that link? I suppose like just to sort of say, oh, this is a bit occulty. I'll I'll see if Matt wants to talk about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that is that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely fair. But yeah, and I think to identify it as that kind of film is accurate in that it's not making up a supernatural in the way that um, Insidious yeah. is for, um, or Poltergeist is, for example. It's going. Let's look at some Renaissance medieval yeah. horror texts. And you know, but not horror text, um, demonography, yeah, yeah. and use that. And I think that's something that you definitely get with some folk horror is completely made up. But I think increasingly there's that interest in tying it to some sort of cult mm. belief already existing. And I'm and just the idea of you know, shall we talk to Matt about that? <laughs> I completely agree with because I am particularly interested in that kind of. Of yeah. horror, I think. Um, I have a couple more yeah. questions then. Do you think that it's that tying it to something that is has a historical basis as opposed to making something up? Mm. Do you think that the, what, what do you think the reasons for people doing that are? Do you think it kind of makes it more horrific, maybe? Mm. Or, but I mean, I think you can go right back to what's happening with the Gothic and right back to Castle of Otranto, where you have kind of the claims that this is a translated authentic mm. medieval text. So in some respects, it's always been happening with horror or the claims to um, this is a true story that you get with Texas Chainsaw 
Yeah, but well, that sounds but... more like found footage type of stuff. Yeah, like Blair Witch, like like this actually happened and people recorded it on their own video yeah. and we just found it and we're yeah. showing it to you. And I think I personally see Blair Witch as an excellent example of folk horror yeah. because of the way that it uses um, both presenting itself as a kind of urban legend and the way that folklore is woven through yeah. the film um, as well, even though it's a manufactured. Mm. Um, folklore but I, I don't know because one of the things again that I really like about The Exorcist is that I feel that it's grounded in something possibly just because it's grounded in something that I'm familiar with so that kind of the, the language of Catholic ritual is something I know yeah. um, so for me that's still going to be the most, the most effective encounter with the occult on film I think just because in those moments there's a rhythm to the speech, the types of words being used that feel real to me and that as a child was my encounter with the supernatural right. in a way that talking about the never in insidious in insidious which i otherwise love just doesn't yeah that's just made up for a film that's not real so i wonder if that but then i don't you know how many people are familiar with paimon so well, that you might know be there's a lot there's a lot more catholics than the there are mesopotamians it's uh, <laughs> exactly maybe one of the reasons that, i mean i know that you've uh, said the other day you said it's, it's only mark kermode that has made this the huge thing that it is and i think that's that's at least partially true mm. but the idea that that people are more familiar with the the framework of catholicism going into the exorcist um makes it more kind of relatable to a wider audience than absolutely something like this the, other, the one last thing I wanted to say was um, I although I maybe, maybe didn't say this but I kind of associate occult and folk horror with Britain mm. um, but you've given lots of examples of, of, of American Hollywood films that also deal with the same thing and obviously hereditary mm. as well um, so is it, it, do you think that's fair to, to, to associate that with Britain is it a particularly mm. British type of horror or, or is it actually more wide or is it something that we do more than we do other types of mm. horror I mean as far as I'm familiar with the history of the term it certainly came to popularity in uh, Mark Gatiss's A History of Horror which was a, focused on Britain and he had one episode on Witchfinder General, Blood on Satan's Claw and the Wicker Man, which have become the unholy tri trinity of um, folk horror, and a kind of like par partly tongue-in-cheek referred to as that within the scholarship on, yeah. on folk horror. And so because of that, I think it's been particularly associated with um, British film and British television as well. Like I mentioned a few of the kind of like 70s kids shows have a yeah. lot of folk horror um, in them which is interesting and with writers like mr james and nigel neal and i think the whole idea of um dancing around stone small communities dancing around stone circles that idea that you can have an otherwise isolated quite backwards community there seems to be some just the land the use of landscapes there yeah. seems to be something particularly british about that but I don't actually think it's the norm for British horror. If you compare that to, I mean, Hammer have really only made two, like original Hammer, have made two films that might be considered folk horror. One is The Witches, which has um, Joan Fontaine, I think I've remembered that right, coming into a community that has a cult, and um, The Devil Rides Out, but which is slightly, which yeah. has Christopher Lee as the good guy, which is which is fun. <laughs> but otherwise, you've got you know, Hammer and Amicus, which aren't really interested in folklore. Hammer are very much interested in monsters, yeah. you know, in big gothic houses, because that's what that was where they shot 
um, films. But in terms of perhaps the use of landscape that's associated with those films, I think there's something that chimes with other depictions of the British countryside. Right. There, I suppose there. it occurred to me that um, we, we still have stone circles and hinges mm. and things dating back from early sort of uh, communities of people long before kind of mm. organised religion started yeah. happening. Um, you can still see them, you can visit them. I mean, they're all over the bloody place, you fall over. Yeah. Whereas in America, cause, because the modern civilization of America is so new, it only started 250 years ago, so um, before that, it's more, it would be the Native Americans. Mm. Um, and, and I suppose you get that trope of building things on an Indian burial yeah. ground. But it doesn't, that, that element of like, like the local history doesn't mm. seem as, as important in, in American horror as it does here. Mm. Um, or, or I, suppose, I suppose it could be. I, I don't no, know if that's, that's just true. you and I. Think of poltergeist. Yeah. Well, but I was also wondering if oh. that's just you and I yeah. being better at seeing the local that's in a British like... film than in a North American. Yes, or... I would think that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, Matt, kind of, how would you. Uh, well, final thoughts are on Hereditary, but also, you know, how would you relate Hereditary to. You know the, the 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 spate of horror films that have come out in the last five or six years. Uh, where do you where do you see it fitting in? Maybe even the last decade, actually, because uh, yeah, I think maybe a decade is more because the <laughs> yes. film that you mentioned, which mm. was the one about you know the the young girl who's selling more. Uh, drag me to hell. Drag me to yeah, hell. Like... For me, that seemed to be like mm. a kind of shift. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think something that we've interestingly seen in horror of the last decade is looking at the 70s with nostalgia as a period of when horror films were good when in criticism of the time it was like oh these aren't as good as the films from the 30s you know the slasher and but there's halloween poltergeist yeah the omen films like there is quite a lot that seemed marginal at the time but that actually became and they've really become a canon now, yeah. I think, as well. And um, there's that sense of of looking back, and there's a lot of focus on kind of just that as a period mm. of of interest, either with the films being shot then, or with a lot of films interested in obsolete um, media like mm. um, fo- um, kind of analog photography and mm. film and filmmaking uh, as insidious, right? And um, yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And I mean, the other, I guess, the big. Before that, the main threads in horror were um, torture porn and um, the found footage film, which I think we're seeing less of now, and a return to these um, family goes to a suspiciously cheap house and a haunting happens um, a lot more. And I wonder if that's part of where the conversation about quality is coming in as well because yeah. found footage will always look cheap that's uh-huh. the point yeah. and people don't like gore uh-huh. so a return to hauntings to family focused to focuses on the economic realities of the period and how that might play out through these family focused I think horrors, that's in- I think are interesting I think that's interesting because then that's also a way of tying them in to like you know, contemporary culture. So, mm. you know, the precarity, the economic uncertainty, the, you know, the, the drops in the housing market and people losing their homes and, and that being tied to, uh, um, you know, a rise in 
uh, superstition. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, you know the way that kind of our culture now, uh, you know, fake news. That yeah, that kind of facts become put into question, uh, and so on. So kind of that is an interesting kind of social context for a film like Hereditary. I think. Um, any last thoughts on the film itself? Um, I guess just want to call back to what Mike was saying about the um, the idea that it is a film that talking about is very very interesting <laughs> and unpicking it and maybe that is almost what the film is for. It's it's poised to have that discussion afterwards. That's why there are those loosenesses and ambiguities that you then get together and have that paranoid discussion of <laughs> you know which I the fact that it prompts that way of thinking that paranoia I think is really really that paranoid analysis is really really interesting and that's something that I didn't appreciate watching the film on my own so it now I think like, I like, kind of share our our reservations though about it not really adding up and kind of throwing more things mm. out than it's willing to co- make coherent yeah or or even just at the conclusions that I end up drawing I'm not entirely satisfied yeah with that when I do attempt to tie it up where it's pointing isn't ultimately as interesting as the questions it's asking. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's the, you know that's a wonderful uh, 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 place to end at. You know this underlining that in spite of the films uh, uh, being unsatisfactory in many ways, that it certainly offered us a great uh, deal of pleasure uh, in talking about it, and particularly mm. in talking about it with you, Matt. So. Well, the thing is, it's a great film. To talk about if you can find yourself a horror guru. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, horror guru Matt Denning. Yeah. Uh, 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 eavesdropping at Movies is on SoundCloud and Facebook and Twitter uh, and all that. You, Matt, are on Twitter. I am on Twitter. What's your handle? At Matt underscore Denning. It's nice and straightforward. <laughs> nice and simple. Uh-huh. And we are at Eavesdrop Movies. No underscore. Yes. Um, yeah. We'll have to come back when we see another horror movie. Right. So, yes. well, thank, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. <laughs> thank you, Matt, and thank you very much for listening. Bye bye.